Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm the Rethink Editor, um, Peter White, and we have with us our solar analyst, Andrew Fontenot, all the way from Australia. Good morning. Um, hydrogen aviation analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Good morning, Peter. And uh, EV and oil analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And we'll be asking uh, at, at some point um, for our product manager, Simon Thompson, to uh, um, what he made of this week's issue. Indeed. Um, on today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the US IRA Act and how it's changing things. And one of the things we see it seems to have triggered is about $10 billion, uh, in sales of utility-owned renewables uh, in the United States already. And they're about to change hands in mega deals. So we'll talk about that for a bit. And no podcast this week would be complete without some mention of COP27. Although, to be clear, everything went to COP26. And for the most part, it was just a distraction. Uh, but we do believe the governments have some part to play. Um, but we think that mostly business is uh, the driver of the energy transition. And then we look at uh, an isolated case in the US where um, I think in Idaho, it's arguing over just how much rooftop solar is worth to the utilities via net metering there um, and how that's going to change. So we'll be talking to Andres about that. Um, but first, let's talk through those renewables sales in um, uh, in the US because Duke Energy has just joined um, in um, putting its renewables on the block for $4 billion this week. Um, that's after we um, heard a couple of weeks ago that RWE in Germany, uh, or rather the, the American subsidiary of the German utility, um, paid $6.8 billion, um, for the renewables arm of Consolidated Edison. Um this seems to be all been triggered by the IRA. Um, what do you guys think? I mean, it wouldn't have happened without it, surely. It's, uh... Well, how, how do you think it's, you know, how, can we work through the logic of this? Because we want to be able to forecast w what other renewables chunks are going to come up for sale in America. Well, surely people are, are uh, eyeing the, the profits uh, given the subsidies in the IRA. So they probably see it as a, Plain and simple business opportunity. I think it's more about the competitive advantage in between countries. You have a you have an asymmetrical kind of government funded benefit in the US. Europe doesn't have that, and so it's just a cost benefit analysis. All that the... does increases the value of them. Why do you have to sell them? Surely, if you're going to build more and more and more renewables, why sell them? I mean, would you say no to like four point something billion? <laughs> if you're a large company like. Con Edison or... I just wonder Duke, if, if, if the CEO of Con Edison or the CEO of Duke don't really like renewables, you know, they feel uncomfortable, and so if they can turn them into cash, they will. Is that is that the rationale? I imagine I so. they're considering a, a little bit overinflated, maybe, but I, it depends on what they're going to be spending this money on. The first company I ever run, I remember my chairman um, said, uh, we, we are always open to listening to offers uh, to buy us for more than we're worth, and I think I think that might be uh, 
I think you may have hit the nail on the head when you said that the, the Inflation Reduction Act will drive up the value of these assets. And so there's an opportunity. We know that the consolidated Edison deal was at 11 times EBITDA. And I thought that was a low price at the time. But when I've, I've looked up with comparable deals in the last few years, it turns out that's a very high price. And it must have been an auction, although there was no mention. And there must have been lots of people bidding for it. So uh, perhaps that's that's it. You know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act has... Um, and perhaps the Inflation Reduction Act uh, will let those utilities go and build a load more renewables, um, which they can also sell at an inflated price. That's definitely part of the question I'd be asking, but also... I think the Inflation Reduction Act has just kind of, it's both inflated the price and it's attracted a lot of attention. It's a lot, well, it's quite easy to say that, yeah, with the onset of the Inflation Reduction Act, everything's going to be heavily inflated, but that's specifically because the attention is being drawn towards America and away from Europe and away from Asia. Correct me if I'm wrong, but these utilities that have sold their renewable development arms, they still have the transmission business in the US, and the US is a relatively uh, tranquil or economy compared to Europe. So they're kind of content to, to sell their renewables business and still have that good business model, whereas the Europeans have a harsher economic situation, which they, they're sort of escaping from, and they're getting involved in US renewables sort of almost instead of just sitting in Europe. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and there's another thing there. The American stock market currently doesn't value renewables very highly, given the um, current attention drawn by the Russian war to fossil fuels. And there's a kind of re-engagement of fossil fuel activity in the States. So the valuations of um, the renewables, um, you know, so that they don't like the renewables, but they value their existing um, utilities very highly because of their, their, their kind of captured um, customers. So I think that they, the, um, their share prices benefit from this for the utilities um, at, the, at the expense of the renewables. Um, there's one other story this week that um, talked about uh, where AES in Indiana has, um, has put out an IRP where it's saying gas uh, gas turbines are cheaper than solar panels. Let's build out more gas. Uh, and it's one of those weird instances where what they're actually doing is refueling a coal plant with gas. So they're changing the fuel type and keeping most of the rest of it the same. They, uh, the transmission connection and everything. But at the same time, Excel um, literally turned around and said, let's invest, let's get rid of our coal, let's invest in um, a lot more renewables because of the Inflation Reduction Act, which means we're almost guaranteed profit in any renewals books. So uh, it's quite weird that, that such different... Um, people with different habits have got a slightly different take on uh, on what the Inflation Reduction Act means to them. I suppose there's a difference between short-term rewards and long-term rewards. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think absolutely what's going we're going to see is yes, the um, the Europeans um, have knocked on the doors of the utilities saying we'll buy your renewables. Or, or it's always been an open question. You know, if you ever want to sell your renewables, we're here. And um, there's another thing going on is is that it's it's not the Inflation Reduction Act, it's the the other previous act uh, that, 
that was produced, which um, uh, which is going to drive money into into transmission lines. So all of these um, utilities are going to they need cash to go and spend uh, um, some money on transmission with the subsidies from the American government, and they're going to effectively increase their control over their um, distributed uh, over the distribution area that they're in, um, which will eventually increase their valuation on the stock market. I think all of that plays. Um, has anyone else got any thoughts on it? And then what does this lead to? You know, suddenly, uh, you know, are we going to see next era up for sale? Because next era is is much more likely to be at the uh, another acquirer because it's the largest um, uh, renewables base in America. Um, I would expect it not to be up for sale, but everything else that's attached to a more conventional utility um, to be up for sale. It's a, it could be a feeding frenzy. We could get a deal a month for the next five or six months. And will they all be coming out of Europe? Well, the Europeans, let's face it, I would draw that NL... RWE. RWE was way behind in its development. Um, RWE had bought um, a, a, a British company called Empower, which had American subsidiary, which only built wind So in America. So, so it, it ended up with this portfolio of uh, operations, which were entirely wind-based. And if we look at last week's numbers on how much renewables was built in the Q, Q3, wind was savaged. It was down 78%. Uh, solar and battery is where the action is. So suddenly it, it saw the opportunity in buying the Con Ed stuff, which was mostly solar and battery, of getting a more balanced portfolio in America and matching the size of its European rivals. So that was a that was a great deal for RWE. I don't know. I just there looks like uh, I think we'll we'll trawl through next week and look through all the other renewable basis from the large uh, investor-owned utilities over there and see uh, if we can highlight any more that might be or should be up for sale. Um, it could be. I mean, it is a feeling frenzy. The Europeans want to get their teeth into America. This is really... People don't understand how rare this is. You know, in the tech markets, if you bought a big company in America, it usually ended up being um, the tail wagging the dog and you ended up going bankrupt because of uh, something on its balance sheet. You know, uh, GE bought Ferranti. Oh, no one will remember those names, but years ago, and ended up going bust um, because Ferranti had bought uh, a company in America, which turned out to be um, a vapor trail. Um, buying big assets in America is usually a bad thing. That's why people buy very hard assets like infrastructure. Um, but the energy market, this has been happening now for the past seven or eight years. And um, we see, I mean, Engie just bought a load of, uh, the French utility, um, just bought a load of assets in America. Um, and it, it just, it, it, it doesn't say what it paid for it, but similar size, um, you know, a six gigawatt pipeline of which, um, um, well, we don't know how much of it's built out. But uh, a lot of it is solar and battery. So that this is going on already, already at a pace. Um, and we just want to get ahead of it and see if we can forecast what's next. Okay, let's move on. Because um, we, um, yeah, so summarize what's happened this week so far, Connor at COP27. 
Um, and let's talk about how relevant it is. So there's been a lot of talk about loss and damage at COP27. And the, well, it's mostly been discussion coming from small island states, things like um, Antigua and Barbuda, uh, and Tuvalu. Just generally small island states in the <clears throat> Pacific that are particularly at risk and are, well, still at risk, regardless of these decisions. But there's actually been some progress and some money being committed towards these things through the World Bank's um, commitment to something called the Global Shield Financing Facility Instrument, which does not roll off the tongue very easily. Um, <laughs> and so as of yesterday, about 225 million euros committed, 170 of which from Germany. Scotland put a bit towards it. UK hasn't yet, but that's how that goes. Yeah, but they're um, talking trillions for reparations, aren't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's I mean, pitiful. So, stage one, is that ever going to happen? The, well, I believe it will, but not this year or probably next. And that will probably be distributed in some probably unfair way from the World Bank to offset some of the damage that's caused by it. But it's the fighting a tide with the amount of money that they've got at the moment. Look at this problem look at this problem from, from the ground up. Um, wouldn't the money, all the money, rather be committed to building out renewables now? Because we hear a lot of stuff from Africa, we hear stuff stuff from Asia, where they're still building fossil fuels. So that if we could commit to building sufficient renewables now, then we can worry about reparations, if any are due, later. Um, and and we can worry about a fund for um, the victims of climate um, climate disasters. I mean, Pakistan. I mean, it, it, I'm sure that the normal aid process will help as much as it can. That um, the catastrophic flooding in Pakistan. Um, but and yes, anything that we can put towards it. Uh, is, is worth doing. But at the same time, if that money is taken away from uh, fixing the main problem, this is going to happen again and again and again and again. I absolutely agree. It's, I think there's an attitude towards symptomatic, um, kind of addressing the symptoms before actually addressing the root cause, in particular from the World Bank. I think it was two weeks ago where we were talking about the World Bank and it generally just not being very good at actually assessing the outcome of its decisions five, ten years into the future. They think, okay, we've solved the problem without actually solving the problem and just addressing the symptoms of the problem that they're actually trying to solve. Yeah. And so they need to change how they're looking at this. I mean, I've got a lot of respect for the World Bank and what it does for renewables. I mean, there are a lot of uh, hydro projects in particular um, that are funded, which are which no investor wants to look at which are needed in some of the third world countries um, uh, and to stabilise their electricity grids. Um, I, I think that if you can look at the list of projects funded by the World Bank, they are, a lot of them are very worthwhile. Um, so, so putting that aside, um, you might be right about its overall view. And I know there's a lot of um, consternation about the American who's leading the World Bank at the moment. I agree, yeah. The World Bank does some very, very good things. 
they just also don't necessarily think through absolutely everything that they do, which it's a large organization. You can't exactly blame them for that. But anyway. When we're up, a long time ago, we were doing forecasts in um, uh, things like broadband or pay TV in places like Brazil. And um, we always looked up the GDP expectation. And one source was the World Bank. And it was always hugely wrong. It was just one of those, <laughs> those things where their expectations for developed countries was, were, was always gloom and doom. And the outcome was normally not, nothing like it. Um, it, was, it was quite strange that you'd think anybody called the World Bank would have a handle on uh, future D- GDP growth, but they don't. It's, um, it is quite odd that they're as out of touch as the IEA. I was going to say, at COP27, aren't we on the lookout for uh, net zero pledges from individual countries and governments? Do you, do you think that's likely? Yeah, they came up with renewed ones last year, the ones that were going to do it. Um, a lot of others haven't done um, um, very much. Um, you know, I mean, India hasn't done enough, but it did, did come out with a, the pledge it was prepared to go with. I think that, that this is... Um, you know, places like India are, are unhappy um, because of the amount of money that was meant to be made available for building renewables um, every year by 2020 was meant to be up to 100 billion, and it, it hasn't reached that number, um, and it's not going to reach that number for another three or four years, by which time inflation would have taken a, made a big hole in it. So we can't see any surprise announcements in, in, in this session of COP? Well, we've only seen the, the, like. the, the talks from the we've only seen the talks from the um, the Prime Ministers and the Presidents. Um, but two days of that and a lot of that was it's just posturing, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean I find the whole process pretty useless. Um, the it's the preparation that goes into these talks that go on through the next week where and where we get a resolution. I mean, the resolution at the last COP to eliminate uh, most of the upstream emissions in, um, in methane uh, was certainly something we could focus on and start measuring. And that's, but that, that came about purely because satellites were publishing data on the amount of methane that was really being released and embarrassing lots of, uh, lots of, of uh, uh, countries. So, especially America. So that 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 kind of thing will come at the end of the conference, and uh, and I'd, I hope there are some pleasant surprises. I expect there to be. Does anyone else have a, have a view on that? With regards to methane, China has announced that they've got a new plan to reduce methane emissions, but what their what well, what that plan actually entails, we don't know yet. So that's still a topic this year, which is good in a way bad in others but i think the fact that china's brought it up is a good thing i mean i think that there's there's nobody who can look over china's shoulder and see what it's doing um it has to volunteer this stuff and i think you know a year after the event it thinks fair, fair enough we 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 haven't done enough in that uh and it's it's volunteer some stuff it, it, abatement of um of methane is fairly you know some fairly basic steps I and mean, we all know about um, people just venting methane for the sake of, of just keeping their production processes stable, um, and um, people bur- or people burning it um, and giving off CO two instead of methane, um, and 
you know, uh, flaring, and, and we've got agreements on flaring and venting um, in place. Does China adhere to them? No one has any idea. Uh, are they going to adhere to them now? Looks like it. You know, yeah, very probably. Um, it's always upstream. I mean, it's even coming out of the coal mines. You know, can can you prevent it from um, coming? From, yes, by the by, how you approach mining, um, less rush and more care, um, and perhaps that's. That, I think there's probably plenty that could be that could be um, done in China to stop methane leaking out of these upstream processes. I think that, and I think it's just saying, yeah, we will. Well, I'm pleased to see um, to see hydrogen being talked up because uh, it kind of. It, it's a, it's like what I was saying about Chinese hydropower just last week uh, or the week before last. No, it was last week, wasn't it? Sorry, hydrogen or hydro? Hydropower. Sorry, yeah, hydro. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's um, that's something I did a piece on, and the International Hydropower Association put out a press release that there's, they're going to basically um, try to get um, permitting uh, shortened and and get some financial incentives. Um, and this, but this is some preparatory policy work, uh, and they're trying to back it by merging a lot of. Um, so the IHA, the Hydropower Association, is going to merge with the Wind Energy Council and the Green Hydrogen Organisation, the Global Solar Council, uh, into a single voice. Uh, I couldn't quite understand. Um, was that voice called Planning for Climate Commission, or was was that voice? Global Renewable Energy Alliance, or were they two things that were um, separately being um, being created? But I think the idea is that there will be a, a larger single voice that speaks for renewables um, and starts making um, getting people to listen to it. Um, I think that was the idea, and that and that, that Global Renewable Energy Alliance brings in hydro, uh, wind, solar, geothermal long-duration energy storage, um, and, and, and hydrogen. So potentially we should see a powerful voice in this argument. Um, I just wonder if you have a room full of people that are experts in wind, solar, and, uh, and geothermal, whether they argue rather than <laughs> act with a, a single loud voice. I mean, let's see how that executes. It would be interesting. I mean, at the moment, people default to quoting IA numbers. And IA forecasts have been a joke in the industry for um, 10 years. Um, perhaps th th this is going to um, replace that leadership. Uh, that would be welcome. And certainly, certainly any laws on the, any policy changes on, uh, on, on uh, uh, hydro, I think really, um, I mean, we've, done our forecast on hydro, which is built into the APE, based purely on the number of projects we can see and the time frame that they're in. And it's it's minimal. I mean, yeah, potentially by 2050 or something, hydro can double. But it should be doing a lot more than doubling. You know, solar's going to go up by a factor of four and a half. So it should, it, 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 hydro has got much more to contribute, um, but where, where does it contribute? I mean, not in America. You know, 100 years ago they were doing that there. Not in China. China's built 22,000 dams in 20 years. Um, Africa is the place. 
where there's lots of um, uh, geophysical kind of opportunities for uh, hydro, which are being ignored while they build coal plants. So, so yes, there are. I, th I think there's still lots and lots of opportunity for hydro, but not in the areas of the developed electricity producers. Not not so much. Okay, so we'll we'll, sit, we'll have another round of, of announcements from COP27 next week, um, and um, we'll have to follow up on that. Uh, Andres, um, net metering in Idaho. What, you know, the argument is, if 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 any state comes up with a solution to this, it's going to be adopted by most of the states. So where where are we heading? Yeah, so what I didn't notice until halfway through writing the article is that Idaho has a population of 2 million. So I was sort of thinking, oh, US state, it must be fairly important. <laughs> but fortunately, this um, this utility versus uh, public commission um, conflict on the question of net metering payments is pretty much similar in Idaho um, to where it is in other states, including big ones like California. Um, it even has the same NGOs like uh, the Sierra Club involved. Uh, on the side of um, net metering and the, the solar rooftop owners. And I have to say, though, as I probably made fairly clear in my writing, I think both sides are kind of making quite unreasonable demands. I mean, for, for Idaho Power's part, which is this um, utility that wants to cut net metering by 60%, uh, they're saying, oh, yeah, well, we're getting look at how much cheaper it is than that to just get it from a utility-scale solar plant. And we're perfectly well able to use that sort of thing to meet our net zero target, uh, sorry, our zero emissions grid target, 100% clean energy target in 2045. And that's when you realize there's a bit of a, bit of a gap between their thinking and the thinking of the federal government and indeed um, probably future generations. I mean, I, I, I thought that, I thought that some way or another that, the Biden administration would have managed to force all of these local utilities onto a 2035 goal, uh, considering you can't have a clean grid on the federal level if there's entire states which are still looking at 2040, 2045. Um, so, so that's the Idaho's power's position, which is sort of just immobilism and trying to avoid um, paying money to rooftop owners for pretty straightforward motives. We also have this kind of a funny part of this uh, counter-research that wasn't from Idaho. So Idaho Power put forth some research saying, oh, this is the value of excess solar. You know, I'm not sure what excess power really is in the era of batteries and uh, when you still have um, dispatchable power sources on the grid that can ramp up and down. But they were saying, oh, the solar isn't really worth much. They, they're using this concept of um, ELCC, which is effective load carrying capacity, and they're saying that it's only it's below 8% even though it's 34% um, for, for this solar plant that they're now buying power from, uh, and even though it's generally higher than that in general, and, and uh, an effective load-carrying capacity would be uh, for a grid that's very solar-heavy, um, like maybe South Australia, where everyone is putting loads of solar power into the grid on, in the right at the same time of day, and there's none in the evening. And you have to... Yeah, I'm, uh, I think electricity, which is randomly pushed into your system from thousands of points um which is, isn't in the right place for for a network that's been built to radiate energy outwards mm. whereas if you've got a central utility um and you build it um in the in the place that you choose you can make sure it's advantageous for pushing energy back out it suits your grid 
Um, so there could be an argument that says utility in the right place is more valuable than rooftop in the wrong place. Yeah, uh, and you can kind of see that in the uh, transmission and distribution deferral um, monetary concept that both sides are, are proposing. As usual, the utility is saying, oh, it costs us a lot to connect these rooftop resources to the grid, and so we want to charge them. Uh, they even want to charge a monthly fee in, in California, according to one proposal. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side, you've got cross-border energy, which was had it, had its report commissioned by the uh, pro-renewable uh, NGOs, and it's saying, oh, the, the transmission and distribution, um, th- there's actually a huge gain of, like, it's, and you should attribute $50 per megawatt hour to the benefit of not having to build transmission um, infrastructure because e- each house will have its own supply and so you're not having to pipe it everywhere. Uh, and, and yes, there's there's all kinds of different um, concepts like that, like um, including avoided generation capacity. Obviously, if you allow <laughs> rooftop owners to build a power plant, you don't really have to, no one has to fund uh, a, a traditional utility scale power plant. Uh, yeah, that's true. Like. And so there's so, arguments... So, well, what you don't know is 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 the extent to which the two sides are in agreement. Really, I mean, they they, they both exaggerate their claims. Yes. Um. This is this should be settled in a um a Canadian arbitration court. Uh, Canada has arbitration laws which basically say you each put an offer on the table, and we choose the offer we like, and it goes to one or or, or the two offers. So arbitration in Canada is always much closer to the middle ground. And nobody claims the excesses, whereas everywhere else, everyone says, right, I'm all the way over here to the right and I'm all the way over here to the left. Now let's argue it out and gradually move towards the middle. Um, and, and that's what's going on here, clearly, that we're, we're, we're not seeing. Um, the rest of the world doesn't call it net metering. Almost no one uses net metering. The whole point of net metering is that the energy moves in and out and you only pay for the net amount you use. But what that does mean is that the utility has paid you full price for energy that you fed back into the system. Nowhere else in the world does this happen except America. And everyone has a feed-in tariff where uh, an agency acting as an expert looks at the value of that energy to the utility and comes up with a value, which is typically 20% of the retail price, uh, and, and half of the wholesale price, um, and, and these, you know, the idea that that, um, that cross border energy says that that um, the contributed price should be one hundred and eighty three dollars per megawatt hour. Now that's more expensive than any other form of generation, including nuclear. But that's clearly in la la land. But at the same time, um, it's it, it, it's um, it, the idea of of uh, of it being twenty eight dollars per megawatt hour is slightly undercooking it. So I'm sure if they were to sit in a room and try and try to agree, they could come up with a a system in the middle. But here's the thing: unintended consequences. We love this kind of uh, problem because what does it push? It pushes batteries in the homes. What does that push? It pushes freedom from the grid. You know, if, if I can't get enough money for the electricity I'm selling the utility, I'll keep that energy in a battery and I'll use it later. And I'll use even less of the grid's electricity. And I, I think this is what's driving batteries in the homes in America. I think, obviously, security of supply 
it's been a very unreliable time for American utilities to deliver energy. And I think that anything that drives the adoption of batteries is a good thing because it drives down the price of batteries, which makes it. Um, so here's the problem. Utilities must be careful what they wish for, because if they give no money to, um, to, to uh, rooftop uh, solar, they'll end up uh, creating a reason to leave their customer base entirely. What they really should be doing is working alongside these customers to put a genuine value on it and then start to try and own the upgrade to batteries by pushing battery and solar as something that you can get your utility to provide you for you, not to try and fight um, to fight it because by fighting it, you're going to lead to a place where you just get smaller and smaller and smaller and less valuable. Well, on the note of um, prices, um, you're mentioning, what, 40-something dollars per megawatt or 30-something dollars per megawatt? Yeah. To put that into context, those um, wind PPAs that um, are deemed economically not viable. The offshore ones. Yeah, they go for about $76 per megawatt. Yeah. And like I said, they're deemed economically unviable. And on, onshore, onshore is about 40. So, so mm. yeah. And it has to be said that, is that. Do you think that's that's putting utilities off when it comes to wind? Or do you think they have no choice because they need the, the green energy? I think there's subsidies involved in um, those, those deals. So I think that's skewing um, what they're actually paying. I think you know you'd have to look at the deal contract by contract, but what people are actually paying. I mean, we we, we when we had that Texas freeze out, and you looked at the um, dollars per megawatt hour, you know, the normal time of day, the not non prime time of day was it was everything was shipping along nicely at thirty dollars per megawatt hour, and then it went up to nine thousand. Thomas per megawatt hour uh, during the freeze out. Um, any system that has that amount of flexibility and just expects customers to play is insane uh, for, for something that you need to live, i.e. heat or, or cooling. Um, so um, the American grid model is definitely broken and the charging model is definitely broken. Yeah, like this net metering. is good. Th this net metering is two decades old, I think, at this point. And it's only just recently become significant in terms of scale in this particular state of Idaho. Um, and it's but isn't there a rule that says it, once it's, it represents five percent of your total energy, you can you can not add any more to it? Um, I have well, I have heard about that in other states, but I, I don't know if it applies in this state. I think they might already be past five percent of total peak demand. They're probably around five percent already. already. It's a, I think it's a federal rule. I think it applies in every state. But, but um, even then, um, I mean, the, the payment is apparently $100 per megawatt hour, which is just, uh, I think that's a bit... That's insane. Yeah. That, that's way too high. I mean, you can go and look at, um, at the amount of... I don't know which segment it's in, but um, you can look at the ISO that it's going through and look at the average price and look at the midday price uh, uh, and you can see that $100 per megawatt hour is insane. It just, um, you know, you, you saw in in uh, Vietnam when they had something like $90 per megawatt hour hmm. for solar. 83 or something. It led yeah. to, 
Yeah, it led to a massive build out of solar because it, it made it every the third biggest, in the world. Got... It was the second big, biggest solar market in the world after China, or maybe the third biggest. It was very funny. And now it's totally died again. I mean, I wonder if there's not a role for FERC to get involved here mm-hmm. and set some kind of formula for a feed-in tariff, which is not the same as net metering. Speaking where, of where if you... Oh, sorry. sorry? Yeah, I, I, I was actually going to mention FERC because its chairman, Richard Glick, whose name you probably remember, um, he was up for um, reappointment in uh, June, and I think Biden reappointed him. But guess who sat on the other end of the reappointment, which, which comes from the Senate, Senator Manchin. And he's still sitting Manchin, on it. Yeah. And right now, we don't know who's going to control the Senate. It still seems like it well, could be away. Manchin going to cease to be important. They'll either have 49 votes in the Senate or they'll have 51. It's never going to come back to straight 50. And either they can't get anything through or they can get stuff through without Manchin. You think it might not be 50? I haven't looked at which races are still outstanding. It could, I think it well, could still be 50-50. And, uh, it could be. It theoretically could be. But the Democrats have already won one they didn't have. So, so it's, it's, if, if they lose all of the close ones, it's going to be less than 50. Um, if they, yeah, it could still be 50-50, but it could be 51-49, good by the importance of Mr. Manchin. Hmm. Well, I mean, we have to see. That's going to take months to resolve because they're going to—they're uh, talking about uh, recounting the uh, election votes. Well, really, I hadn't heard that. There's a runoff in Georgia. Yeah, there's also yeah, Georgia runoff. again. I thought they had another—didn't they have a Senate election in 2020, then 2021, and now this year, now another runoff as well. <laughs> they had a runoff in 2020 as well. Yeah, I remember that. It's a bit it's like Brexit. Been. We don't like the result. Let's do it again. <laughs> wow. I think that was Warnock and Loeffler at the time. I don't remember. Um, I, I think this is going to change, but I think the marketplace will will embrace whatever it changes to, whether uh, and whether or not IDO is um, a, a decision that gets copied across all the other states. Uh, at some stage, I, I think if something is innately unfair on the utility, it has to be fixed. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you've got you've got a situation where the government is subsidising you putting stuff on your roof, which sells electricity to the utility at more than the wholesale price. That's, that's just ridiculous. It's just, it's an anti-utility. But at the same time, if you let the utilities have their way, they crush rooftop and you can't have that. So, and I, 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 may not have, I may not have read this activist uh, pro-renewable report. Um, I may not have read its wording quite right, but... I got the impression if you added up all these huge benefits that they were claiming uh, for rooftop solar, they're saying, oh, you save all this money from not having to buy fossil fuels and not having to build power plants and not having to build transmission. And it comes to $183 per megawatt hour. (laughs) And I got the impression they would say that's how high the net metering payment should be. Maybe maybe a false impression. That is what they've done. Absolutely what they've done. But at the same time, look, People that run utilities may, in some cases, be prejudiced um, against distributed energy. But what they're not are idiots. And they can see the writing on the wall, and they can see the biggest resource in America going forward is going to be distributed. Every single one of them lies awake at night thinking, how can I own that? How can I make that mine? How can I control that in some way? 
And I think one of the precursors to that is to get net metering down. And I think that may well be a good thing because it, it, it may be uh, like, like um, waves here. First, we get net metering down. Oh, that's sad. You know, we get, you know, there's less incentive to build solar. Oh, that's, that's a shame. And then they say, oh, but we'll borrow the money and we'll, we'll build the solar on your rooftop for you and we'll give you a cut in uh, the cost of electricity. Now, it may be that most Americans don't trust their utility provider and don't like them and don't believe that they, you know, wouldn't do business with them in that way. Outside of America, and there are much more healthy relationships with utilities. And I think a lot of people would love it if, yes, I want solar panels, but I can't afford the £15,000 to put them on my roof, and I want a battery, but I can't afford it. Uh, if you're just going to give them to me, and I'm going to end up with cheaper electricity, that's fantastic, please do it. I think, I think when there is mutual trust between them, the, the customer and the utility, that's definitely a possibility. And that's got to be the way forward. Although I, I, I think in America, there, there's, there's not a lot of mutual trust between the two. Okay, um, Simon, um, that's been quite uh, um, energetic already. Where, where are you taking us? Um, what are you going to highlight as something that piqued your interest? Well, yeah, an, another great addition of Rethink Energy and especially uh, the announcements from Longi uh, in the uh, in the new solar module product and uh, a very technical article about how uh, about Longi's new developments. But we're not here to talk about that. People can read it. Uh, one thing that caught my attention was uh, as we look again to, to the Middle East and um, uh, to Qatar, but in Oman... Uh, there is a, a news comes from a green hydrogen auction. Um, and, and again, you don't associate um, the, the Middle East with green hydrogen. But here's another country um, going for, for hydrogen. Yeah, I mean, we, we wrote about um, Oman's plans for renewables and hydrogen in general. Um, a few weeks ago, so it kind of links back to that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, they have they have um, they have released a detailed plan 2030, 2040, and twenty fifty targets for um, electrolyzed capacity uh, powered by renewables. Um, I think it's in the million tons um, per year of green hydrogen that they want to produce uh, by twenty fifty. Um, and uh, this auction, they basically put up some tenders. For developers to um, to lease uh, um, land plots to build to start building electrolyzer facilities uh, powered by renewables uh, to produce green hydrogen, so they've kind of like kickstarted that uh, the whole plan. Would it be? Yeah, for I mean, I love the idea. I lo no, I mean, so I was going to say, I love the idea. They thrown in the word water desalination, and Amman oh. Am has a huge shortfall in the amount of um, of water. Uh, it has, and um, desalinated water currently makes up about 10% of its existing water supply. Um, so, you know, I figure that somebody has worked out here, hey, if we give them these plots of land cheap, they'll they'll have build lots of renewables, uh, they'll pay for the building of the renewables to, to make green hydrogen, and we can get a good deal on using some of that renewable energy to drive straight into the bay to do water desalination. I mean, uh, I think... Um, 
that's that's always top of mind when you're looking at these um, semi-desert states. I, I don't see an amount of money in there, so I don't see... Um, I think what they're doing is inviting people to use their natural resources. They're not they're not offering up cash. This is not someone converting oil money into future um, uh, renewables revenue, I don't think, yet. Or it might be, but I think um, they want to see what... Um, all of the large organisations that are chasing hydrogen uh, will offer. Well, then you wrote it. So, did you notice whether or not there was a, you know, having a target of one million tons of production by 2030 is one thing, but there was no amount of money attached to it, was there? No, I think you're right. I think they're looking for for people to just come in from the outside and um, invest. And Jason, what were you saying? I was going to say it sort of reminded me of um, when Iran funded um, four gigawatts of solar off the back of its uh, uh, of the high oil and gas prices of 2022. I mean, that's not that wasn't hydrogen. That was just for their own grid. Uh, it's just an example of even the oil country that's very heavily sanctioned and uh, relatively poor can do that. Um, I mean, do you think the the all of these countries will be able to become lucrative hydrogen exporters in the future? Or are they just going to have a horrible collapse in a few decades? Uh, okay. Uh, can both of those facts be true? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they've got, they've got natural resources. Look, you, you look at a map of, of Africa and then a map of the Middle East, and you go, where's the irradiation good? And where would it be a good place to build solar? And if anybody's looking at building solar there... The answer isn't just based on irradiation. It's based on the local regulations, how much the government will get in the way of what it wants to do, uh, where it's going to sell that energy and what the highest prices it can get for it and how it's going to transport that energy there. If it's going to turn it into hydrogen and there's a bay, uh, there's a a port where ships come in, great, you know, that's fine. But but, um, there's a, a complex sum before you choose where, who you partner with. And if one regime is a little more strict on, I don't know, taxation, importing workers yeah, than another, then you just go to the neighbouring state. You know, And I, I think that this is... Um, uh, I don't believe that they're going to be able to write their own ticket because they, they own the oil. You know, they, they, they own the desert, but other people have got desert. It's a different equation when when you're looking at at uh, solar irradiation as your primary power source um, and hydrogen, the route through which it's going to be exploited. It's uh, there's a lot. It's a lot more complicated than uh, than I, I think nobody knows at this stage. So everyone's basically saying we're open for business. Come and talk to us. I mean, where was the one in um, was it Western Sahara or no? It's a neighbouring one to that. Yeah, it was uh, Western Sahara, to, um, Mauritania. Could have been, yeah, I think it was Mauritania. It's about six yeah, months ago. Someone's going to put 10 gigawatts of, I think it's even longer ago than that. But yeah, so someone's going to put in um, uh, lots of solar and uh, export the energy either via cable or by um, by hydrogen. Yeah, I mean, and, and if, if anyone kicks up a fuss, they'll just take it to the neighbouring state. Everyone's got desert. It's quite cheap. Okay, as Simon said, the issue it was a good issue this week. We're very, very pleased with it. Um, you go to rethinkresearch.biz. 
You click on the energy button at the top and it takes you straight to our weekly analysis, which is free to read. Um, the forecast and data button shows all of our forecasts and all of our calculations and research papers on the critical issues of for energy of the day. And they cost money. We charge $4,600 for a single corporate license. Um, if you want to explore that more, email simon at rethinkresearch.biz. I'm, I'm sure he'd be very glad to talk you through it. And with that, let's end this um, podcast, this week's podcast, and we'll be back again next week.